Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out this evening. And virtual audience, thank you for joining us. We were laughing because we sold our last copy of the book just a few minutes ago, but a very kind fan has allowed us to use her copy so we can say that The Exile is, in fact, the new book by Jane Harper. So exciting. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for, for coming out. It's great to, it's so great to be back here. So um, it's been a few years. So thanks. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. We did a Zoom event in 2021, Jane and I, when she was home in Melbourne and I was home somewhere. But how wonderful to see you again. And one of the lovely things I think about the writing that you do is that you've been touring us around Australia to various regions. You've even done a little jaunt over to Tasmania, if I remember right. Was that the 21 book? It was, wasn't it? It was. That was The Survivors, yeah, in, in right. 21, yeah. So Tasmania, what did, what drew you there? Um, so for that book, um, I The Survivors, was that was set in um, kind of a coastal small town. Um, it, was, it was another Australian mystery like all five of my books are. And um, for that one, I just wanted somewhere that was really rugged. And Tasmania is like a, a really small island state in Australia. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever been there, but it's, it's, it's very kind of small, quite small population and just coastline everywhere. And it's one of the few places that you can dive for shipwrecks and all kinds of things. So it's quite a unique little spot in our country. It was wonderful to read about it, but in this book, in this book, we are in lush wine country, as opposed to, say, the dry, which was not lush, was it? <laughs> and Aaron Falk, this is his third. I've heard sinister rumors it might be his last, but, you know, is it a three-act drama with Aaron? It is. So, yeah, so it's, it's the third and the, the last book featuring Aaron Falk. So the first two, The Dry and Force of Nature, um, were, were the first two books where he appeared. And then I did two standalones, which is The Lost Man and The Survivors. And then um, I wanted to return to him, um, but um, I, I, I went into Exiles knowing it was going to be the final book for him, um, which was quite a, an interesting sort of writing experience for me, kind of going in knowing that was going to be um, the final the final chapter for him. Um, but you know, I, people sort of ask me, is it because you know you were you were sick of him or you wanted to move on? And that's that's absolutely kind of not the reason. It's actually completely the opposite. Um, because I've loved writing about him and I loved writing about him in Exiles. Um, but I think you know a really important part of being an author is. Um, is thinking about endings, you know, because strong endings are so important and they're as important as strong starts. And, uh, you know, it's really, I did not want this to go on past what I felt as the author was really, you know, the, the viable kind of, um, the viable journey for him. And, I, you know, you, you kind of have to sort of put commercial and financial incentives aside and really try and do what's right for the character and for the book. So, um, you know, I wanted to give him a really considered thought out ending that was right for his character and that I spent a long time thinking about and I thought really kind of brought his his story to a close in a way that um, I felt was right and I hoped kind of gave readers what they wanted as well. You know, this will sound morbid, but the truth is over the years we have had authors writing series who've untimely left us. And what we've noticed is that customers hardly ever miss the author, but they really miss the character. And they can be, no, I'm serious, it's come up quite a lot. <laughs> and um, as because we've been doing this now for 33 years, so, you know, numbers of authors and customers have aged. And and it's true that what happens is that, that they feel incomplete, the readers, you know, they wanted some kind of an, of an ending for a series. So you've kind of preempted that, haven't you? Yeah, and I, I think that the worst, you know, the worst sort of case for me would be for 
um, you know, Fawkes characters kind of kind of continue on past the point where, you know, I had, you know, good sort of valuable ideas for him and past the point where the readers were maybe as engaged as they w- they could be. And, um, and I really, you know, because I, I have loved writing about him so much. I just, I didn't want it to fizzle out. I wanted it to be this kind of, you know, conclusion that I felt he deserved. Um, and, you know, it was sort of, it was quite a bittersweet decision because, I mean, yeah, part of me would love to continue writing about him, but I think, you know, it's, um, I mean, he's he's not a homicide detective. He's not someone with a huge extended family. Um, he doesn't have kind of the backstory that would allow me to really go into, you know, in, into huge sort of um, new avenues with him. And that's just sort of a, a, a kind of a factor of, I guess, you know, him being introduced as a, for me as a debut author. You know, you make decisions on a debut book that, you, you know, you've no idea that it's going to become you're going to end up writing five books or um and and so you don't maybe build in those avenues that you would if you were starting out to write a character that was going to have 20 books in them so I think it's really important to be really clear out about um you know not every character is built for a 20 book series some of them you know have three books in them sure and actually um for a debut novel yours was a phenomenal success you know became an international bestseller um, became a movie and so forth. That was a lot of weight to put on Aaron. And sometimes I found that that authors, if, with that kind of success, kind of freeze. You know, they don't necessarily have another story about that character in them. Yeah, and I think you know, for me as well, when you know, when I wrote the dry, which was if I, I'm not sure if everybody's read it, but it's it's it's, it's um, Aaron Aaron Fawkes, the main character in that one. He goes back to this uh, small drought-stricken uh, community for the funeral of uh, um, a family that he was friends with the um, the father of that family when um, they were young, and it got made into this great film with Eric Banner recently. And um, so it, it was it was really great to you know, it was amazing. I mean, that book exceeded my expectations. So, you know, so, so much really. Um, but I also, I also kind of knew really early on that I didn't, I didn't just want to write that same book again. And I think it would have been probably um, an, an easy short-term solution for me to, you know, for my second book, essentially write, you know, that book, that book again. And, and, and sort of, and I think there were some readers who maybe wanted me to do that, just produce the same kind of book again and again. But I think that's really, a short-term solution and, and I, I wanted to be like a, a long-term author and keep doing this for a lot of years so I wanted to kind of rip that band-aid off quite early so Force of Nature has him in it but it was a very different setting and then um, the next two books um, The Lost Man and the Survivors are both standalone so um, you know for me as an author I think that was the right choice. Well, you're the only person who can decide that. So, yay, you did. <laughs> right. So, as I said, we are in lush wine country, which is a gorgeous part of Australia. First time I was in Australia in Sydney, we went down to, I'm trying to remember, what is that area where the convicts first landed? It's um, like the rocks or some such thing. And there's all kinds of little wine um, tasting and wine little things down there. Yeah, in, in the rocks in Sydney? It is the yeah, rocks. Yeah there, is oh, place, yeah, there is the rocks, yeah. At my age, I'm having yeah. trouble <laughs> with instant recall. So anyway, um, and, and what you can do is you can get like sample 10 or 12 different kinds of wine in one of these little, and they only give you, you know, like, but um, it's, it's just Australian wine is so wonderful. Um, I really like the Shirazes particularly, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, it is it is sort of um, literally world class. I mean, it, you know, wins a lot of international awards. And um, I think, um, 
you know, I, I wanted to set Exiles. Yeah, I thought quite a lot, a lot about where I was going to set this book. So I went in knowing it was going to be Fork's final book. And um, there, uh, I guess a few sort of factors going into it. I mean, the last two books, The Lost Man was set in Outback Queensland. And that was a mission to get to. Like that involved like hours of like, Outback driving with a very generous retired cop, and and then the survivors. Um, I had to for part of the research. I I needed to go diving because I had a diving scene in that I couldn't really write without having done it. And I was twelve weeks after giving birth. I was sort of zipping myself into a wetsuit, about to dive into these freezing Tasmanian waters. And I thought, you know, this is never again. The next book, <laughs> we're going to be looking somewhere much more yeah, sort of moderate. So, um, so I was sort of thinking, you know, where was I going to set it? And I and um, Part of this um, in, in Exiles, um, it sees Fork reunited with his friends, uh, Rita and Greg Rako, who we met first in the dry. And he goes to this small community in South Australia to um, attend a christening of Greg's newborn son. Um, and I knew I wanted to sort of reunite him with the Rako family. And, and probably, um, I'm not sure if anybody else knows or cares about this fact, but the Rakos are from South Australia. That's mentioned very briefly in the dry. So that kind of turn my head in that direction and once I was sort of looking towards South Australia you can't really go past wine country it's such a um, kind of pivotal part of that state you know it's, it's what they're known for this kind of food and wine region it's you know a huge kind of destination um, and it produces some of the best quality wines you know in the, in the country in the world so it was um, the research trip for that was a, a lot a lot easier and more fun I'll, I, I can I could say absolutely yeah do you know the author? Did you know? Because sadly, he's left us. The author Peter Robinson. Um, I know. I've never. I know of him, but I've never a, met well, him. And yeah. you won't now, because no, sadly he died. Yeah. But nonetheless, I keep coming back to that. I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm in that mood. Anyway, Peter. Um, Peter took. I don't remember if it was. This, it must have been a standalone because this guy was a Yorkshire policeman. Anyway, he went, set the book in Southern Australia, and he forced himself to do research by actually going to Southern Australia wine country, and he drank some wine that he really loved, so he put it in the book. And ever after, he kept getting a case of wine <laughs> from because it was such great publicity for that. So did you have the new to... Um, you know, I, 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 wish I, I wish I'd heard that story before I went. I was, no, <laughs> I, I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't specific enough in any kind of way. Right. That's yet to happen. But it's product placement, Jane. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> On your next book. <laughs> to learn from the greats. <laughs> That's <it>. right. <laughs> Absolutely true. I love that. But anyway, Australia wine is wonderful. But one of the things I thought uh, was particularly interesting with Exiles is that he's not there on any kind of an investigation. He's there as a private person going to a christening. He's not going to a scene of a crime or, you know, investigating something. Well, it turns out he is, but he doesn't know that. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, he, he, he um, so we see Fork go to um, this small South Australian town, Fort is christening. And, and the bulk of the action in the book actually takes place um, a year after the prologue. So the prologue opens up with um, this, uh, an incident where a baby is found safe and well. I like to say that very early. The baby is fine. Um, it's not that kind of book. The, the baby is fine. She's sort of tucked up in her pram um, alone, um, near the Ferris wheel, um, and but her mother is is gone, and her, and her all her belongings are still in the pram. And the question is, what has happened to this woman who used to live in this town, has very strong kind of family connections there, um, but has moved away and has come back, um, and and now she's she's gone, and her baby's been found alone. Um, and then the bulk of the action then takes place twelve months later when Fork return will go for the first time to this town, and he is. Um, 
kind of, you know, um, moving in close circles with people who knew this woman well. And I, I feel, I, I thought a lot about the sort of timing of this book and when to set it. And I considered for a while whether to set it, you know, in that kind of immediate aftermath where, you know, uh, the woman has gone missing and, and it's that kind of heart-stopping moments. But I felt for me, you know, the in, in all my books, I feel that the mystery or the crime is more... Um, the catalyst for the story it's not at the heart of the story and what's at the heart is the relationships and I felt like you know setting the book a little bit after the event it just gives the characters more time to breathe and it allows them to have conversations that you can't have in those urgent you know days and, and, and hours after something's happened so um, a lot of the book is about kind of relationships in a way that um, you know sort of you know unspoken truths kind of un uh, unfold um, you know, when people start to reflect on, you know, what's happened and their, their role in different things. I had a conversation with Ana Reyes in her first book um, last week, was it? Well, anyway, it's called The House in the Pines. And one of the things we talked about was first anniversaries. So in point of fact, it's been a year since this mother was missing. Is there something, do you think, about, you know, anniversary dates, like a year that, that I mean, because they could have done, you could have done this 10 months in or 8 months in or 13 months out. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, I think absolutely from um, a, you know, like an emotional level that you know, anniversaries of any kind of traumatic right. event tend to sort of, you know, resurface people who think, you know, this is where I was last year, this time this was happening or last year, this time it hadn't happened yet. Um, purely from also a practical writing point of view, um, you know, I think I think it helps a lot with the driving the plot because, um you know, it naturally leads itself to, you know, reenactments and appeals right. and, you know, police kind of asking people to, to revisit their events. So it's a it's a natural um, way into people kind of revisiting and talking about what's happened, which, um, uh, you, you know, is, is good as an author from the, the sort of um, character and plot point of view. Well, absolutely. And actually crowdsourcing has become um, an important part, really, of investigation so often now. Um, and, you know, where if things haven't have come to a halt, in a kind of investigation, getting people to a group of people who might have memories or stuff on their camera or whatever it is, but having them revisit it, sometimes they they remember something they'd forgotten or they see something differently than than it was. And and Fork actually in in the in the book he sort of reflects on the fact that they've a lot of people will be coming back to the town for this event and and he sort of laments a little bit that sometimes you know people people you know they're so keen to help that you get so many different um, accounts and different points of view that then the challenge becomes actually sifting through them and trying to find out what's what's relevant and what's not when you've got maybe maybe too much information coming in. Absolutely. So the actual anniversary is not the anniversary she's missing. It's a festival or what, what is what is it that the town is celebrating, which is when a year ago she went missing? Yeah. So I wanted to set because, um, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's really important when you're you kind of choosing a location to um, bring out those little kind of authentic touch touch points that make that, that kind of the people who know that location or that sort of setting would would recognise and also bring it to life people who have who would never have visited there. So um, South Australia is a really, as I mentioned, a really huge sort of food and wine um, sort of um, region. And a big part of that is, is kind of, fest, you know, festivals, these wine festivals where, you know, you have tastings and um, and, and and all kinds of things to sort of celebrate the, you know, the produce and the, the industry of the region. So that's where um, the book opens in, in, a, in a busy festival, which also I think as an author is a great um, kind of device because it, you know, lots of, 
you know, any sort of venue where there's lots of st sort of strangers and people who know each other naturally kind of mingling with each other. And, um, you know, there's, there's, um, it's, it's dark and there's, there's lights and there's music and there's lots of things going on. So, um, there's lots of opportunity there to kind of, um, ra yeah, raise questions about, you know, what, what, what's happened. But nonetheless, um, in a way, if you're going to have any kind of sensible investigation, there can only be like so many suspects if the entire world could be suspect in, or in her disappearance. And we don't even know that there's a suspect, right? We don't know why she has disappeared. But, you know, you do have to contain it if, if there's going to be any investigation. Yeah. So that would bring back some people who maybe were there the first year, you know, when it happened but then haven't been there and now they're back again. So you're pulling in that whole circle. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, for me as an author, one of the reasons I really love setting the books in kind of small communities or kind of isolated settings is because um, it's really because what I love as a reader and what I what I like as a reader is uh, of mysteries where the the kind of the question and the answer, uh, are, you know, are, are both contained within this kind of little bubble of the novel. You know, it's it's not um, it's not kind of one of these sort of, sp sort of epic novels where, um, you know, th there's a city and there's a thousand people coming and going and the, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the culprit or the, the resolution is maybe not connected directly with, um, you know, the who's involved at the start. I like um, those kind of. Um, I guess some more sort of classic kind of crime situations where it's um, you know it, it's it's uh, it's all there's a, there's a set cast of people and the the questions and answers are all kind of contained within them and yeah you know, it comes back to that kind of my interest in that sort of the relationships and particularly the aftermath of a tragedy as well where I think you know things are very still unsettled and people are still coping with their emotions and um, you know trying to kind of re re sort of work their lives in a way after something has happened that has really changed the course of their life, um, possibly in a way that's, that's never going to you know, be quite the same again. Well, that whole closed circle structure is very Agatha Christie, but it has held up over time. Um, and, you know, certainly in the dry, when you think about it, you know, there were only a certain number of people who could actually, you know, and so you were sorting through them, which, um, you know, it's not unlike um, Death on the Nile, for example, where only the people on the boat you know, one of them had to be the killer unless you assume that a hippopotamus reared up. Do you all know that a hippopotamus is the most dangerous? I love this because I've been to Egypt several times. The, 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 the animal that kills most people in Egypt is not the crocodile. It is the hippopotamus. Yeah, who knew that? I <laughs> just throwing that in, but yeah, <laughs> I keep coming back to death. Do you know about that? <laughs> I, I actually I didn't know drink. that because I, I have two children aged six yeah. and three and I spend almost every single weekend at the zoo. So I actually did know that fun fact yeah. because I've been on that tour a number of times. <laughs> so right. it's, it's, a, it's a good fun fact. <laughs> I know. The pharaohs used to throw the bad people to the hippopotami. You just have to, have to really love that. So anyway, here we are in this town. Now, you know, we don't know why this woman is missing, but the fact that her baby is all by itself herself this, this little uh, girl yeah. right is all by herself neatly tucked into her pram you have to assume that the mom wouldn't have just left her there voluntarily yeah and i think you know um like i just mentioned i have two kids and they're, yeah they're six and three and i think you know when i was writing this book they were you know um five and two i guess um and I, you know a big part of um i guess a big part of my kind of working life as a writer has um you know does sort of my, my 
yeah, my experience as a parent kind of does creep into it a lot. Um, I had my first child in 2016, which is the same year the dry came out in Australia and then it came out in the US the following year. So my, my kind of experience being a professional author and being a parent yeah, overlap exactly. Like I've never really had one without the other. And, um, I think that, um, you know, people tell you like, you know, it changes, your perception changes when you have children and, and I, you know, and I'm not sure if I totally believe that till it, till it happened, but, um, I think it does. And I think that absolutely kind of informs my writing in a lot of ways. And there's certain, you know, there's certain areas and certain things that I would never, I would never touch on as an author because I just couldn't, um, I couldn't bring myself to kind of write about, about them. And I like to kind of position the books in a, in a way where I feel like, you know, I could share them with my, you know, my, my friends who are, who are also parents and have children. And, um, you know, I, I like to sort of, um, you know, as an author, you get to pick where you position your books, and that's kind of where I choose to position mine. Well, in case you're thinking that's just a mom thing, if any of you have ever been to one of Michael Connolly's events here, which, in fact, he has been here for every book he's ever written, um, he had that experience as a father. It really changed the way that he wrote, um, becoming a dad, um, informed, you know, things he would choose to write, things he would choose not to write, um, you know, and I, I, you're right, being a parent, you know, is a profound effect on many, many people. And if you're a writer, it can extend into your writing life as opposed to people who just have to get on with it every day. Yeah, that's right. And I think, and I think you know, with, with time and everything you do, you know, your, your perspective does change on things. I mean, there's sort of, there's certain, um, you know, when I was writing The Dry, which is my first novel, like I didn't, I didn't have, um, I, I wasn't sort of pregnant and had my child then. I wrote that before, the, before then. But even... Even now, I mean, it's hard for me to sort of say, you know, I would change anything about the dry because it's, it's changed my life. You know, it's completely transforms, you know, my career and, and it's it's done so much for me. So, um, you know, it, it would be hard for me to say I would change a, a word in that. But there are certain aspects of that around um, yeah, the, the the opening scene and the and the, the death of a family that, to be honest, I wouldn't, I actually would not do again. You know, and I don't sort of regret doing it at the time because that was the book that I wrote and, you know, it, it's... It, I'm, I'm happy with the book as it is, but just as the author I am now, um, it's yeah, interesting but, how you, know, you wouldn't do that again. It was the gut punch of the, of the children, I think, uh, that made the dry so powerful. It was really, really hard. Yeah, right? I mean, you I know? don't, yeah, and I don't disagree, and I don't really, I don't sort of re re regret it. Like, I don't sort of look at book and think, oh, I wish I'd done it differently at all. Like, there's it, not a part of me that thinks that, but it's just interesting how if I was to tackle, if I was to tackle that sort of book, if I was to tackle that book again, I, I feel like my mind would go different different ways um, just with the experience of having, you know, children of that age myself. Sure. So we have a missing mother. We have a child who's safe. Uh, we have a family that nobody knows, you know, can't find out what's happened to her. And so the theories are, you know, what, what did happen to her? You know, how could she have disappeared and how could she be got? We're not going to tell you. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, you know, that would be, aside from the question of why is the baby there and the mom missing, then the next question is what could have happened to the mom? You know, did she wander off? Did she have some kind of medical event? You know, did somebody, I mean, there are all kinds of possibilities there, but a year is a really long time for somebody to be missing. 
And and I think, you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed writing about this book was um, that there's this very sort of close-knit family structure within it. So the, the woman who's missing, she has a teenage daughter as well, and she has a baby. And there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, and, and, and Fork's friends, that the Rakos, Rita and Greg, they have two children themselves. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of um, kind of, you know, theories and discussions about, you know, about motherhood and what's, you know, the pressures that, that mothers feel, particularly, you know, mothers of new, new babies and, um, and one of the things I really, um, you know, I kind of particularly loved writing myself about, about it was, um, the, the relationships with Fork and the Rakos and how, you know, they, they kind of give him a real perspective on family life and they have such a sort of strong relationship with you, with each other. And they're so sort of gentle towards him in their friendship. It's a very stabilizing relationship for him in his life. Um, and, and I really enjoyed kind of all the scenes um between that that sort of um trio and the way that they they were able to kind of give him a perspective that he he doesn't really have maybe on his own as a kind of a, a single you know a sort of middle-aged man true you soften him up. i will say that he does soften up some but um the real question for aaron is he's not there in any official capacity he's come for a family event so how does he get drawn into trying to figure out what's happened to this woman yeah, well, it's a good question. And it's one I thought about a lot, actually, when I was sort of trying to think what kind of book to write, um, what what his, you know, what Falk's final book would be. Um, because, um, so when I when I first set out to write The Dry, you know, um, you know, Falk was, you know, I, I'd love to kind of have this, you know, great sort of romantic story about how, you know, Aaron Falk came to me fully formed and I thought you're a great character and I'm going to write about you and this book's going to be great. But it, it, it really wasn't sort of like that. And I, it, and I, for me, characters are always, um, I like to be a bit more blunt about it, especially when I'm speaking to aspiring authors, because I think it's unrealistic to think that characters are going to be fully formed initially. And, and the characters are always there for a reason. They're there to kind of advance the plot. So for Falk, a lot of decisions were made because it was necessary for the plot. So I wanted him to be someone who had, had you know, connections with this town um, in the drive, but had been away, you know, not close connections. So he'd, he'd lived there for a while, but sort of left under a cloud. Um, he knew the family, but again, not well. So they were old friends, but, you know, not people he'd stayed in touch with. He didn't have a, a like a strong community there anymore. Um, and I deliberately didn't want him to be this kind of slick homicide detective who came in and showed like the the country cops how it's done so I I, I made him like a financial investigator because it was he had some policing experience but it was not his specialty um and so then fast forward sort of three books and you're still kind of working you know within those parameters that you set for those reasons in the first book and I actually met this um woman who so generously said call me anytime because I work in um i actually work in for the afp in the financial division handling their communication so if you want give me a call and i will talk you through all kinds of stuff that they do and you know um and i was like great amazing like this is going to be you know gold um and i called her and like honestly this poor woman i spoke to her so many times like over like I couldn't for you know multiple hours and she was so generous with her time and so forthcoming and I ended up with nothing um because the fact is this job is like um like I found out things like the average investigation takes seven years to complete um it's almost all done from the office so I got a bit excited when she was talking about how they can seize you know seize sort of proceeds of ill-gotten gains it's like great so did they go out there and you know, break down doors. No, no, it's mainly done through the lawyers. You know? So it was all this. So I, I sort of quite quickly realized, you know, I'm going to have to, um, for Falk's Final Mystery, it's it's not going to be, 
it's not going to be like a professional mystery. It's going to have to be something that kind of drives him personally. And he doesn't really have a personal connection with this woman, but he does have a very personal connection with the Reiko family. And I guess by, you know, by extension, their extended family. And it's it's really his friendship with Reiko and his kind of... Um, you know, I guess obligation that he feels as a friend to sort of help his friend out that kind of draws him into into this mystery and helps him, you, you know, want to sort of find out what happened, really to, to put the Reiko family's mind at rest. So the local, uh, um, you know, they haven't shown a lot of result if it's been an entire year. So, you know, it, it's oftentimes the conflict in a, in a crime novel comes from the law enforcement agencies butting heads with each other rather than any, I'm sure you've all read books where the FBI has a turf war with the, you know, whatever's going on. Anyway, um, so he has to trade carefully with the local law if he's going to do any investigating, and that's all we're going to say about that. But, um, but clearly he does some investigating, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one of the things that really helps him out that um, it was also a lot of fun to write was the the kind of the, the range of characters who are within this kind of extended family and friends network. Um, and, you know, one of the benefits of having people who have different kind of roles within the group and different ages. So we've got a couple of teenagers, we've got a, some kids, we've got some people who are, you know, kind of, um, you know, have had sort of failed relationships within the group. And, and the, the thing that... Um, is always something I should try and really keep in mind um, when I'm writing. And I always sort of try to tell aspiring authors it's worth it's worth sort of bearing this in mind, um, even if you don't, even if you're not kind of thinking about it initially. Um, when you're sort of getting the plot down, is that all these characters will have different perspectives. So everybody is bringing their own kind of life and experience to a situation. So nobody is seeing the situation in the same way. Um, they're certainly not seeing it in the same way as the author, and not even in the same way as the main character, because they've all got their own. Um, you know, everybody brings themselves to a situation. And one of the things that sort of helps walk out a lot is that, you know, different people have got different takes on on what's happened. So the teenagers are kind of seeing things in a slightly different way and, and um, you know, the kids are and the adults are. So it, everybody's kind of got their own little sort of take on, on what may or may not have happened. You know, you did that superbly well in The Lost Man. I think that the narrative structure of The Lost Man was just amazing and... You know, it was so hard to see the final denouement, uh, which oh, we're not, again, not going to reveal in case anybody hasn't read it. But honestly, it's it's really an amazing book from a structural standpoint. I thought you did that very well, Jane. Oh, thank you. And actually, that was so, if, if um, for those of you who haven't read it, it's um, The Lost Man is set in a really remote, like super remote cattle station out in Queensland. Um, so, for example, when I went down to do the research, it was um, it was an 11-hour drive over the outback which, with this retired cop who who actually wouldn't, wouldn't you know, wouldn't sort of let me drive myself. It's that kind of dangerous and treacherous. You know, you have to kind of be sort of escorted, really. And, um, and you know, the, the nearest neighbours are kind of hours apart and the kids all, I mean, now, Nowadays, like lots of kids have gone to school on Zoom and things, but the, the kids all went to school of the air online, and um, it, and it's a very, um, a very, very insular community where you've maybe got sixty-five people flung over this huge area. Um, and in that book, there's, it's set around one family, and there's, there's there's three brothers and their mother and the farm worker and some backpackers and a couple of little girls who um who live in this cattle station when one of the brothers is found dead. And the, the challenge with that one was actually 
um, coming back to what I was mentioning about diff- people having different perspectives is with this one family, um, their experiences are all so similar in a lot of ways. They, you know, they speak the same, they've, they've grown up literally in the same household, they've generations have grown up in that household. So, um, it, trying to sort of differentiate, but they're very different people as well within themselves. So, trying to differentiate different people who have, who, you know, have very similar sort of ways of speaking and very similar ideas as well was, um, you've got to kind of really go for the nuances. You do, but I mean, the challenge in that book was it was such a small circle where the crime occurred and the number of people where, you know, who could have participated in it. So I thought, you know, it, it's actually easier with a larger cast, isn't it? Oh, I think so. Yeah. It's a, although with a lot larger cast, you've still got to keep, um, uh, you know, keep them all kind of wrangled, you know, in place. And right. and I think as well, um, the, the challenge I, th- I find a little bit with a larger cast is you, you've got to make sure they've all got sort of adequate page time. So sometimes you'll have characters who, because you want all the characters to kind of, they've all got to do some heavy lifting, you know, they've all got to be there for a reason. And um, a big part of that is making sure that they, um, you know, they by the end of the, by the end of the novel, the finished novel, they all feel... the reader cannot tell which ones are kind of um, the main supporting characters and which ones are the secondary supporting characters. They've all got to feel kind of real or authentic and and fleshed out. Um, It doesn't have to happen immediately in the writing process, but by the end, you've got to to get there and have them all feel hopefully three-dimensional. You know, a really great mystery or certainly a great thriller depends in part on, well, actually falls on the on the villain i mean in a thriller if the villain's no good the whole thriller falls flat but what you can't really do is is wind up with the you know eventual bad actor not having enough time on the page where the reader has any sort of chance to figure it out i can think of one classic novel where i won't mention the name of it where they where the murder actually didn't appear until page 257 and you know it was like seriously (laughs) um it it turned out to be a bestseller but i thought that was amazing to get away with that um and um you know i mean in part you know part of a mystery part of the fun i think of reading it you know is to figure try to figure it out before you get to the end but you can't if you don't have enough time with you know the yeah. eventual bad actor. No, I totally agree. And I think, you know, one of the things I, I always try, I always sort of say I try and write books that I would like to read. And one of the, the books I like to read are, are ones where, you, you know, you, 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 you kind of get a fair, a fair go. And, and, um, and ideally ones where, you know, you get to the end and you can look back and you can see where the clues were and you can see like, oh, okay. So I should have, I, I should have seen that. I can't believe I didn't see that. And a lot of that is like, I think as the author is, is like real sort of trial and error because, um, in the, in this sort of the drafting process because you don't none of them really work on you you know you have to kind of really um take it from a really logical point of view and think you know most people you know if they see a they will think abc you know they 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 most people's sort of thought process will follow a kind of a natural track um and it's about giving them that sort of natural track while also planting kind of the clues along the way you know, in a way that they, they their heads aren't turned from that natural track, and they don't necessarily see those little kind of diversions and and the, and the alternates, you know, maybe alternate viewpoints and things until um, you know all is revealed, and then it sort of seems hopefully you know obvious and clear. Because um, it's sometimes when you know you have to kind of it, it's a bit of a leap of faith. You have to kind of lean into that and just trust that people will people do tend to yeah you know, we all tend to think a certain way, and um, 
there's sometimes I'll be writing things I think oh my god like they'll they'll definitely get it from this like there's this big kind of red klaxon like clue clue um but um but you know I've sort of I've sort of grown with confidence over the five books because I find that usually you know usually I don't by the time I you know I sent it to the editors and they're the first readers and they're really the ones I'm you know checking like do, do they pick it up and I can sort of tell now on a logical level what ones what ones they won't pick up you know yeah, one thing you can draw from this discussion is if you're writing a series, you really are stuck with whatever decisions you made for the first book. Absolutely, you can't go back <laughs> and you know, yeah, and yeah, back engineer it. That's right. It's My friend Laurie King once said that writing a first novel is basically like packing a trunk for a trip. You know, you fold things in, you don't know if you're really going to need them, but if you didn't put them there, you yeah. can't ever take them out. And if you want to change your packings, you know, later it's too late. Um, and yeah. that's an attraction for writing standalones is that basically, you know, you're starting at zero. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's why I, 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 I really enjoy writing standalones and because I think my, my sort of the way I kind of come up with the ideas for the, the books is um, it, for me, it's, it's sort of plot first. So it's kind of that core idea first, you know, what's something's happened. It looks like this, but what if it's this, you know, and it's that kind of question I'm sort of thinking about and then quite quickly I, I'm sort of thinking okay if that was the idea then what's sort of the setting that would support that idea and then it's like what are the characters you know what kind of characters do I need to sort of support the story and who would I need to sort of tell this so so it, I'm kind of building it out from the plot um but you know when you've got like a recurring character they have to be at the heart of it and um for me that's that that's not my sort of maybe my natural leaning but it was it was one thing it was really good for me to write this book though because you know, I did. It, I knew it was going to be Fork's final one, so he was at the heart of it. An entire novel was built around him, which was a little bit of a different way for me to approach things. And it was it was quite good, you know, um, just as an author to kind of try and do it that different way, and 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 realize that I like I could do it that way, and I was I was happy with the results, and I was happy with the way it it built out. But um, you know, so it's good to challenge yourself, as, as, you know, in that way as well. But I think for me, the standalones are a much more natural fit because everything is on the table. You can the you know the whole world is open really you're not you're not guided by the decisions you made back in 2014 or whatever that's very true and the other thing it's a little more exciting for you the reader because anybody can die in a series you know jack reacher is going to live to get on the bus right and ride out of town and come back yeah. but in a standalone nobody except the dog and you're being yeah. very good i might add <laughs> you know the rule don't kill don't kill the dog or the cat um is high so i have one question before we open it up that has absolutely nothing to do with your book but um, Australia, in this time of climate change, has had some really horrendous climate moments, you know, terrible floods, terrible drought, fires, the whole bit. Is that, you know, something that might fuel a story for you? Or, you know, if you've set it in a place where, you know, extreme flooding or extreme fire or something has come along? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's, it's hard to ignore it all. Yeah, it is. And I think it's something that's very, you know, um, Australia's sort of very conscious of. You know, I mean, you sort of see it, you know... So you know, so much on the news and things, and uh, I mean, people you know, literally you know, losing their entire entire communities, getting mm -hmm. getting washed out and things. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I mean, if I had the kind of the right um, the right idea that would fit that fit well within that sort of um, you know that sort of space, I think one thing that I, I do try not to do is like I, I I like to let the themes kind of emerge from the plot rather than the other way around. So rather than sort of say I'm going to write a book about yeah, that sort of tackles sort of climate change in any way. I would rather the the plot and the characters were in a position where, you know, climate change was a factor and it was part of their their lives and um, it was sort of woven in naturally rather than 
um, go in, you know, rather than go in with that as the, the first angle. No, I totally agree. But I was thinking to myself, you know, what an absolute, I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing, but what a gift to a writer yeah, you know, yeah. to have these awful things going on. Um, well, I mean, if you were in California, you'd have so much to write about. And we've had the, you know, honestly, we have had more rain in Phoenix since August than Seattle. I mean, how weird is that? If you've really been paying attention, you know, I mean, that's almost inconceivable. And yet we still don't have enough water for the Colorado River. But, you know, it, the whole world, I think, you know, has to to react to it. Yeah, that's right. And I think anything that's kind of a moment of extreme as well is, is a, you know, is something that people remark on. And anything that people are kind of, a, you know, aware of and conscious of is, is good, is good kind of fuel for for an author. Mm, yeah, I agree. It really is. So I know you all want to dash home and find out what happened to the woman. But before you do that, um, how about questions? Anybody? Oh, there's a hand. Let's, you know, Jane, you should you should call on him. Oh, this is no, your no, show. You, you, call, you call out. You call out. <laughs> Passing the buck. All right. Let's start with you. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the question is, um, when I start to write, do I, do I already know the ending? Um, and yes, absolutely. So yeah, I, 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 um, even when I'm sort of thinking about, um, the idea for a book, quite often I'm not actually thinking about the opening. I'm actually thinking, you know, about that ending, that kind of moment where you realize what's happened or the reader is sort of showing what's happened. That's actually what I'm thinking about sometimes in terms of when I'm thinking of an idea for a book you know what has happened there's been some extreme moments who who is involved what has brought them there who knew is it something you know long bubbling is it something spontaneous is it an accident and and if this has happened what's what could maybe have appeared to have happened in, instead you know so is that so I'm actually kind of working out a little bit backwards from the ending so yeah so what's happened where's it being set who's involved you know what's led to it and I'm sort of um working out so quite often um you know I work I'm sort of working out to the point where I think okay so if this is a sort of the story where's the most interesting place to kind of drop the reader in so that we can start the story and go on together to and everything in it is kind of funneled towards the ending so there's some so, like hugely successful authors who I know start from page one and they kind of write and it sort of they work it out as they go I and I cannot even begin to tell you how they do that. I, I, I couldn't, I personally could not, I couldn't, you know, do anything like that. So, um, but it just goes to show it's, you know, different. There's no right or wrong way to do it. <laughs> Every writer's mind works differently. So these two ladies have actually flown down here from Washington State today. Oh, wow. Just to see you. So do you, either of you have a question? No. Oh. <laughs> I paralyzed you by pointing you. I wanted to make sure you realized. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, yeah. Right. Has anyone else traveled a large distance? No? Not, oh, yes, sir. Where are you from? Oh, you too. Wow. Oh, you're all together? Indiana. You came from Indiana. Wow. Isn't that impressive? Thank you so much for coming so far. I, like, I thought I'd come a long way, but that, like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's my, it's, um, thank you so much for coming. Like, and, and also to the locals as well. Like, let's not, you know, forget. Well, um, forget you the, the weather's pretty bleak in Indiana right at the <laughs> moment. So it may, <laughs> it may not have been entirely an altruistic decision <laughs> for sure. Was there? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. Good old Dimix, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yes, yes, well spotted. Yeah, it was um and um, McLaren Vale as well was the other area I went to for the research. Yeah. 
Yeah, great. Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not just being coy about it. I'm, I'm still un, a little bit undecided. I think there's still like a lot of uh, the, the beauty of Australia is so it, it is such a hugely diverse landscape. So I think there's still a lot of kind of unexplored areas. I mean, I think like um, kind of up north, like Northern Territory would be, yeah, it would be a great one. Um, I feel as like probably uh, potentially like the kind of tourist areas that are kind of Great Barrier Reef type, you know, um, there's a lot of, you know, backpackers and kind of people doing sort of slightly dangerous, you know, sort of experimental like hobbies for the first time. And um, there's, I, I feel like the mining culture of Western Australia might be quite good. Although I have to say researching that would be an absolute pain. Like I can't, I have to, I'm working myself to, uh, up to sort of trying to, you know, <laughs> could I tackle the research in, you know, getting into those mining sort of mining communities. And um, uh, yeah, so there's, I think there's, there's still sort of a few, uh, I thought the, I feel like the flying doctors as well is maybe, kind of, that's not really a region, but more kind of a, yeah, they sort of operate all over, but I feel like that is kind of ripe for picking as well. So um yeah, any may, maybe any or none of those. I'm not, I'm not still thinking about it. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. I do. I, uh, I so I used to barrack for Geelong, so I used to live there. But now I barrack for Carlton because my husband and daughter do. So. <laughs> I, I you see you you know you know your, you know your Aussie rules. <laughs> Is it is it Collingwood? Okay. All right, Jane, you have <laughs> for the benefit of those who are not Australian, translate the word footy for the rest of us, will you? So there is so it's, it's, thank you for bringing that up. So there is there's a play there's a there's a guy there's a character in Exiles who is a former uh, AFL player, which is um so Australian rules footy is a bit like um I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it, it's sort of they um it's kind of a bit like rugby, I guess. You know, they they sort of does an oval shaped ball. There's goals at the end. They they kind of kick it to each other. They can catch it, um, and it's just this absolute kind of religion within some states. They just just love it. And, like, and I live in Melbourne, which is such a like sporty state. We have the grand final every year, and um, it's 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 such a it's such a kind of important part of our culture that um, on the weekend the grand final is they actually made the day before that a public holiday, so we could all kind of get our barbecues out and you know have our friends around and things. So it's um so in the book actually one of my favorite characters to write about was this retired football player who kind of left the game you know um kind of at his peak it has never really you know um quite risen to those heights again so i'm going to have an australian moment melbourne has one of the world's great train stations the other great one is in dunedin in um is it dunedin in new zealand well anyway whichever town in new zealand but melbourne has this spectacular one and there's a particular hat that is sold in the melbourne train station it is um kind of a not quite a cowboy hat but it's it's a, sorry? That's it. Thank you. And at Gruber, so when I was in Melbourne, the first thing my husband did was drag me to the train station to buy an Gruber hat. When we went to Auckland, the first thing he did was drive me to a store so he could buy an all-black shirt because <laughs> he, too, is into the sports thing. But, you know, it's important that you local color, right? That's it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Melbourne's a gorgeous city. And I want to say if you ever go there, it has the one of the world's most beautiful libraries, an absolutely spectacular library that you want to miss. And also the botanical garden is great. Anyway, another question. Anybody have? Yes. Yeah. So, so the question is, what, what does my writing process look like? Um, so um, for me, um, so I'm a big planner. So I would, um, so I spend, so the way I do it is I spend probably, um, 
you know, maybe up to sort of three months, not even at the computer, just kind of thinking, like just thinking about um, kind of testing out ideas and like trying to let you try and let kind of the good ideas rise to the surface. Um, and um you know, it's it's sort of what I'm kind of looking for is that what I mentioned a little bit earlier that kind of something's happened and could it look like something else and um and, and what would that you know how would that all kind of fit together and and it's it's a bit of a um it's hard to sort of really um pinpoint when you know you found that idea because often ideas are are not great. You know, when you think about some great novels, the ideas themselves are kind of nothing. You can describe them in two sentences. It's about the execution. And I'm looking for the idea that I feel could be executed well. So something that's got a lot of avenues um, would kind of support like a reasonable cast of characters. Uh, and when I sort of feel like I've kind of hit, you know, that, yeah, that sort of um, idea that I'm looking for. So all the time I'm also making notes like, and again, I'd love to say I'm doing it in like, you know, a quill and parchment paper, but I'm doing it on my phone, on the notes app on iPhone. Um, feel like I've kind of got it kind of sorted in my head a little bit then I would kind of go to the computer and then I take all the notes and I put them on a, a word file and um, I would try and um, put them in the best kind of chronological order I could so kind of beginning middle end um, and so you've maybe got kind of I sort of ideally end up with like maybe about 20 sentences kind of you know sort of laying out the rough kind of yeah what, what sort of happens in the book and then it's just a question of um this is where it gets kind of, it sounds quite boring because it is quite boring. You just keep going back and back to it and like trying to scratch out those 20 sentences. So you just put in 20 paragraphs and then, you know, um, sort of like half a page. And, and, and I find that helps me, again, some authors do not plan, like it doesn't work for them. But for me, I find it allows me to be more creative because I can try out different ideas without committing to thousands of words. So I can see in note form whether it's going to work or not. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess this stage where I've got a, a whole plan um, where it's, it's chapter by chapter how the chapter's going to start, how it's going to end, what's going to happen, what the readers going to discover, who's involved, where it's set, you know, there's coffee shops, a beach, whatever. Um, and the, the entire book will be kind of laid out. So then on kind of day one when I start like writing, um, I never really have that blank page fear because I sit down and I can open up my plan for the prologue and I'll have maybe six or 700 words of my notes and I'll know exactly what happens in a prologue and then I can just copy paste that onto a Word document and then the only job then is to kind of write it nicely. Like I'm not having to do the heavy thinking and that allows me to write it kind of quite fast. That draft, And sometimes it doesn't always work, like even as well as you plan, sometimes things work in the plan and then when I get to the actual writing of it, I find that um, there's too much happening. Like I actually need a bit of a bridging scene to get them from home to the festival or something. Um, and so that, then I'd have to kind of re rework the chapters a bit, but at that point I would come out of the writing and I'd go back to the plan and I'd, I'd, I'd work, I'd work, work it out within a plan before I don't kind of write live, uh, sort of think of it. So, um, but I, I just feel like writing a book is such a huge undertaking. And I think the thing that kind of paralyzed me for years was not knowing how to, you know, how you got to this kind of finished product of the book. And the only, the way this works for me is separating it out. So separating out those thinking stages, the kind of drafting stages, and then the writing stage just allows me to tackle it a little bit better one step at a time. And the lucky thing about crime fiction is it sort of comes with a structure. That's it. Yeah, exactly. It's not like Which literary fiction where, you know, yeah, you, um, yeah. So, and I find it helps, as I said, like to know the ending as well. Indeed. Yeah. Well, oh, one more. All right.
Um, I don't know. I don't have anything for, but I, I do know some people find that really, really valuable. Um, I kind of work like very solo. Like I, I sort of just, I literally, I don't even really tell my editors what I'm writing about. Like I kind of say, you know, oh, it's a, it's a mystery set in South Australia. And then, you know, and, and, sort of, and, um, and then I kind of disappear for like a year. And, um, so I just find, cause, cause I find for me, um, it's, especially with crime novels, I think it's, it's really important to keep those fresh eyes and I'd rather the, the editors particularly read it completely cold for the first time so they can see does it work and does the ending make sense to you and things so um so i i don't really run it by anybody um but i do have a, a group of um like friends i guess they're friends yes um and um so for example um there's, there's this great um author called sally hepworth who is an australian author who i don't know um if you haven't discovered it, she's so she's coming to see us oh well, april 13th you, you Absolutely. She is the most amazing kind of speaker. You will be rolling in the aisles. She's, you should get her to tell you the story about how she wrote, she wrote a whole, she and her husband had to go to a swingers party for research for a book that never ended up getting, getting kind of off the ground. Um, it's, it's a very, it's a very PG rated story. It's fine, but it's, she's, it's, um, she's full of like really great anecdotes. And um, it's, it's, um, I've probably sold her. She's actually a lovely woman. She's a very, you know, um, but she's just a very sort of vivacious, fantastic woman. She writes a lot kind of, if you like, you know, like Liam Moriarty types, kind of that real domestic noir with like the twisty kind of turns and things. Um, she, she's, you're know, well worth discovering. So The Soulmate, I think is a new one. paperback is out this month. Actually, it's in the February book news that I wrote to you. So please, somebody from this audience, come to Sally's and remind me. Or you ask the question, or I will blow it, Patrick. Attention, <laughs> Patrick is here with a couple of questions from the um, viewing audience. So, yeah. question about um, is that your new dog Barbara <laughs> <laughs> you know what my puppies are at home because they're too ill behaved to come down here <laughs> the, I am such a sucker for this little dog she's, she's a Havanese and she is beyond her hairdo you've got to admit Jane have you seen a dog with a hairdo like that she has this fabulous top knot um, and she dances but anyway I'm, I, I meant to apologize because I got so distracted when she was playing with me it sort of interfered with your conversation so I apologize for that but I just can't resist her so no not my dog, not your dog. but I would kidnap her in a heartbeat if I had a chance one question are there any other you've, you've mentioned a few but any other Australian crime writers that we might not be aware of that we should check out Um, the, the person, so I, I, I think Sally has actually um, a really quite good recommend. Um, the uh, other book I've been completely like stuck into this time all year, last year, which you probably maybe are aware of already, is um, 
what called um, everyone in my family has killed someone by Ben Chris Stevenson. Um, have you read that? It's just yeah. come out over here. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. So I love this book. It's, it was so great. It's like this. Um, it's kind of set around like this, this, this kind of really dysfunctional family. They go to a ski resort in Australia, actually. Um, and um, you know, and and as you sort of tried to suggest, there's, they've all got these sort of skeletons in their closet, and um, it's it's it's. It's so hard to describe because it's a really fun, fresh take on classic crime fiction. So the main um, protagonist is a is someone who who writes about crime fiction for a living. So he's kind of writing his own sort of story that would reference to these sort of classic crime novels, and it's just it's so fresh and original. I have not read anything like it for you know years, and I think it's really exciting to see authors kind of take a bit of a challenge and try something just a little bit different. And I, I feel he succeeded so well and, and so everyone in my family has killed someone by Benjamin Stevenson is definitely worth checking out. Absolutely. Michael Robotham is another one. We're going to do his um, U.S. debut next week. Sir Larry Gentle, The Woman in the Library, which is up for Aunt Edgar. And I'm uh, proud to say a book dedicated to me because I'm the editor. So that was exciting. Um, and I actually have a couple of books I'm going to give away here to some deserving people from Australian authors. One is Carrie Greenwood, uh, who is actually writing another Franny Fisher. But if you watch the Miss Fisher mysteries, the clothes were outstanding. And then an obscure author, but um, a wonderful book called Killing Adonis by J.M. Donnellan. Um, very interesting book. And actually, with that title, kind of Valentiny, only it's really not. Um, <laughs> Right, and I'm trying to think. There's a new one. Who did we Zoom with last year? Then she turned out to be a huge fan of Michael Robotham and fell apart when I asked her she wanted to do the event with me last year. I can't think of her name. Blast it. Right. Anyway, um, I have said for some time that the Scandinavian noir may be giving away to the rise of the Australian wave. So... And Jane certainly has a lot to do with that. So very exciting. So I want to thank all of you very much for coming this evening. And you too, puppy. Um, and so what I'm going to give away the books. And then what we'd like you to do is fold up your chairs and lean them against the wall and line up by number. But normally we do this with numbers. But I've decided that tonight, since we have people who traveled, I'm going to give the books for the people who've come the farthest. So, ladies, you look like you could actually read a book called Killing Adonis, which is, which is bizarre but fascinating. And I think, no, 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 it's for them. I have a different book for her. I'm going to give her, would you like the Carrie Greenwood or would you rather have the bizarre book? No? And then, are you actually from Australia, sir? You. You live there. All right. Then the gentleman from Seattle back there is going to be the other recipient. How about that? And thank you so much for all the great questions as well. It's been really lovely to talk to you. And thank you for, you know, your interest in the books and for supporting, um, you know, supporting um, authors and bookshops the way you are by being here. It's been very, very nice. So um, let's give Jane a big round of applause. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.